0: How is it that in the so-called land of the free, the president can act unconstitutionally with a free pass? How is it that the Supreme Court is above all other branches of government and can do anything it wants? How is it that the states have been relegated to mere corporations and every issue, whether it be abortion or health care providers, are determined on a national level by a few in a centralized, all-powerful government? What if I told you that the foundations for this was laid out by one man? One man had a vision of an unlimited centralized government with high taxes that regulated all industry. One man had a vision of a military that is all over the world engaging in endless conflicts. One man had a vision of central banking, crony capitalism, and a system that favors the rich at the expense of the poor. Does this system sound familiar? Well, we're living in it. Who was the man that laid out this foundation? You probably all heard how the founding fathers wanted a system of limited self-government. Well, the man that laid out this plan wasn't Woodrow Wilson or Barack Obama, but it was, in fact, one of the founding generation. This man? Alexander Hamilton. Welcome to Base Liberty, your source for politics. The government is way too big, way too intrusive, we are overtaxed. History. The right to self-defense is a natural, God-given right, the founders clearly understood this. Economics. We can't just keep printing off money, we can't just keep borrowing money. If you think this path is sustainable, then I've got a bridge in Brooklyn to sell you. And more. From a Liberty perspective. I've got to disagree with you there, the income tax is clearly immoral, because it assumes you don't own the fruit of your labor, the government. With your host, Darren Wisely. Deregulation and decentralization are the answers if we're ever going to get this thing back on track. We need to look to families, churches, and charities, not the state. What's going on? Welcome to Base Liberty, episode 11. Darren Wisely here. Today is Thursday, September 10th, thousand twenty. And today, well, you heard in the opening monologue, and if that didn't get you a little bit excited, then we might need to call an ambulance because you must not have a heartbeat. So we are talking about Alexander Hamilton, and if you've gone through the kind of mainstream education, you might be saying, how can you say all these mean things about Hamilton? He's a founding father. He's a hero. uh, He's one of the greatest Americans ever. And that is kind of the narrative. I mean, he's got a musical named after him. He certainly is glorified in the mainstream media. He's the darling of both the left and the right. And usually the way to know who some of the worst villains in American history are is if both the left and the right accepts that they're generally pretty good, that's when you know, okay, this person's awful. And it is pretty interesting because Hamilton, as we'll find out, is certainly... Uh, No progressive does not belong on the left. He believes in monarchy and a system that favors the rich. And this whole notion that, oh, he's an immigrant. Well, not really. Uh, He did come from the Caribbean, but that was part of the British Empire. So he moved from one spot of the British Empire to another. I don't really know how that makes you an immigrant. That'd be kind of like moving from California to Michigan. I mean, it's kind of a different country because it's Kamiforney out there, but you get the point. It's still part of the same country. So that claim that the left tries to use to tie themselves to Hamilton doesn't really make sense. Now, I don't—he's not really a conservative either, at least in the American tradition. Now, he loved British tradition, so you could say he's a conservative in that sense. And the neocons do love him because. Hamilton is a complete nationalist, uh, more so than just a nationalist. He's a monarchist, and they use him for their kind of one-nation mythology. They love uh, to use about American history. problem is, once you get past all the propaganda and all the kind of uh, Hollywood uh, glorifying of Hamilton, you realize he is nasty, he's vile, Hamilton is a liar. And what you'll see in today's episode is the worst trait about Hamilton is just how duplicitous he is. He says one thing when the Constitution is being ratified, and as soon as he gets into office, boom. He totally flips the script. No shame about it. That's why he could be the biggest villain in American history in terms of one person who's done the most damage. Now, there's a couple others you could argue, so I'm not going to say definitively it's Hamilton. You could say Woodrow Wilson and a couple others there's a strong case to say that no single person has done more damage to the united states than alexander hamilton let's just start off uh like i said he was born in the caribbean he had no father uh he was an orphan very young and lucky for him he was taken in by a merchant who seemed to take a liking to him and he sent him up to new york for an education And uh, Hamilton's story really is a great rags-to-riches story. So there is that aspect of him to like. And then he uh, joins the Continental Army. And he is a great patriot during the Revolutionary War. So I'm not going to take away uh, some of these good things to Hamilton's credit. He becomes uh, Washington's aide-de-camp. He's an officer. And uh, great for the cause of the American Revolution... Uh, but afterwards, it all goes downhill from there, unfortunately for us. Hamilton, um, he's part of the Federalists. So three, I touched on these briefly, the Spirit of 98, these two factions. The Federalists, who were actually Nationalists, and the Anti-Federalists, um, also known as the Republicans, or but they were the true Federalists who believed in a Federalist system, Uh, Jefferson would be one of the anti-Federalist Republicans, and then uh, Hamilton on the Federalist side. But Hamilton had some very unique views in that he went a step beyond the general... Uh, nationalist Federalist side, and he was actually a monarchist. Hamilton really admired the British mercantilist system, and this was a system where the government protected certain industries. It was kind of a precursor to uh, state capitalism or what we more generally call crony capitalism. He absolutely loved a strong central government and was very much an ardent proponent of that. Hamilton wanted a king and he also wanted senators uh, appointed for life. Hamilton said, well, this is what we're gonna get anyways in the president, so why don't we just get right to it and call it a king now, which kinda interesting. He didn't really believe in uh, limited self-government like a lot of the founding generation. He wanted a system that worked for the rich and what he called the rich and the well-born, which is kinda interesting considering where he came from. One of His biggest contributions is he loved banking, and he was the one behind the Central Bank, uh, which was the precursor to the Federal Reserve, which is responsible for all kinds of corruption and uh, destruction in American life today. And he even went as far as to say that the public debt is a public blessing. You can really characterize Hamilton views as loving a central government, loving absolute power, he loved central banking, he loved manipulating with debt and currency, and overall he's just completely an elitist. Hamilton did a very good job hiding these views when he was trying to sell the Constitution. So, uh, at this time of ratifying, and again I've touched on this in another video, but the Anti-Federalists who wanted the small decentralized uh, system of government were very skeptical of this new central government uh, usurping their authority. And the Federalists were trying to sell the Constitution through these Federalist essays, which you've all heard of. And Hamilton wrote a good deal of them. You can see this will show how duplicitous he is because... He sells the Constitution as this very strict, uh, limited document that only gives certain powers to the general government, everything else for the states and the people. Um, But then, of course, after it's ratified, he kind of pulls a gotcha, and he gets into office, and he tries to make the – central government as big as he can and he lays the framework to this Leviathan that we're under today. Just a few examples of this in Federalist 21. Hamilton says that tariffs which are an indirect tax are better for the economy than a direct tax direct taxes are what we have with the modern income tax just three years later when hamilton's in office he gets all kinds of direct taxes in place that he said would be for war granted at this time the united states isn't at any type of war but he just said we needed these taxes and these would lead to certain insurrections like the whiskey rebellion Another example of Hamilton just flipping the script in Federalist 33. Hamilton says that the necessary and proper clause of the Constitution wouldn't confer any additional powers to the federal government that were not expressly delegated. When Hamilton's in office, he cited the same clause to give the federal government power to act in ways that weren't expressly delegated, such as uh, proposing the first national bank. It's really interesting because this idea of a national bank was immediately shot down in 1787 in Philadelphia, but then Hamilton uses this very uh, vague clause that wasn't supposed to mean anything, and he even said so at the time of ratification, to do something that no one wanted, at the ratifying convention, and that he said the federal government had no power to do. So the guy's just a liar, but the list goes on. Uh, When it comes to the Supreme Court, as you know, is responsible for liberty being completely eroded here in the United States. Hamilton said the Supreme Court would be the weakest gov- part of government, wouldn't be able to do anything against the other bodies of government. Well, we all know how that played out. And Hamilton later on orga- helped organize the judiciary to have power over the states and the other branches of the federal government. Other example of Hamilton skewing the Constitution is with the General Welfare Clause. And you've heard how it's been used to do pretty much anything Richard Henry Lee was very concerned about the General Welfare Clause saying it would be used uh, to do every possible object of human legislation. Hamilton said, now that is absurd. Of course, Hamilton does the old bait and switch when he's in office. He says this clause uh, is for a vast variety of particulars, either of specification or definition, which is... So you can see just a few... Permanent issues that we're still dealing with today that we can thank Hamilton for. Let's talk about the first September 11th tragedy in American history. This is 9 11. 1789, Ryan McClanahan coined this term, so I don't want to take credit for it, and if you want to learn more about Hamilton and some of the other justices, he's got a book, How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America, great read, if you want to learn more. Washington appoints Hamilton Secretary of Treasury, he is the first Secretary of the Treasury. And what are some of his fine creations? Well, he establishes the first national bank, which would be a precursor to the Federal Reserve we have now. Of course, the United States didn't have money at this time because, you know, we just got done fighting this big war against the most powerful empire in the world. So what does he propose? He says, well, we'll just fund the bank by borrowing from ourselves. James Madison, being the constitutionalist that he is, says, well, what authority does the Constitution give for the federal government to set up a bank the attorney general randolph also advised washington against signing this bank bill and thomas jefferson opposed it as well he said the necessary and proper clause uh gave no authority hamilton in, in another one of his fine working says that necessary means no more than needful requisite incidental, useful, and conducive to. As we know, Washington did end up signing the bill to establish the first national bank. When it came to war debts, um, basically what the Continental Congress did during the Revolutionary War was just write a bunch of IOUs um, to the soldiers that they said they'd pay back after the war was over. Now, as time went on, uh, these the value of these IOUs plummeted and soldiers became really concerned that they wouldn't be paid back at all. And of course, a lot of them are just scraping by. Um, We all know the tough conditions these people went through. Uh, A lot of them in this uh, hardship sold off these IOUs to wealthy speculators who were willing to take that risk, and they sold them a lot of times for 15, 20 cents on the dollar. After the war, once this government set up, there's this question, what are we going to do to repay these IOUs, since a lot of the soldiers that were actually paid them had sold them off. Well, Hamilton said, we'll just repay the speculators, because these soldiers showed little faith in, in us winning, they showed little faith in the United States government, so... Uh, We're not going to do anything for them. James Madison said, no, no, no. These people were desperate. They had nothing else. We should actually pay back the original soldiers we paid the IOUs to, not the wealthy speculators. Ultimately, Madison's argument didn't win the day, and the speculators were the ones paid back. Another issue uh, relating to war debts during Hamilton's time as Secretary of Treasury is assumption. A lot of states also went into debt uh, funding this war. There was a question about how are they going to uh, pay off this debt. Well, Hamilton had the idea that, well, we'll just centralize it all and we'll have the federal government take on all these debts. Well, this was a huge red flag to the anti-Federalist Republicans for several reasons. One, uh, taking on all this debt would centralize the government. Give The federal government more authority than they're supposed to have. And two, this, um, like a lot of Hamilton's policies, favored New England at the expense of the South because, for instance, Virginia had already paid off their war debts. So the federal government uh, taking on everyone's debt is basically using tax dollars from those in the south that had paid off all or most of their debts and subsidizing those in new england who hadn't paid off their debts so it was really a windfall for new england at the end of the day there was a compromise known as the compromise of 1790 what happened is uh, those who objected to the assumption madison jefferson agreed to this assumption in exchange for The United States Capitol being in the South, and as we know, that's where it is today in Washington, D.C. Hamilton was in favor of high taxes to fund all of his little schemes to make the government bigger, have it meddle in more things, have the military doing all kinds of stuff. One of the big things being taxed at this time uh, was whiskey. And the problem with this was that it really hurt uh, people in the West because it was uh, hard to uh, ship that over the Appalachians. So um, they would keep it out there in the West to be more profitable. This tax disadvantaged uh, farmers out in the West and benefited uh, those in the East. These farmers, fed up with this tax, said, you know what, we're just not going to pay it. And out in the West, in the frontier, Western Pennsylvania, It's really hard to kind of track them down, get them to pay it. And the Pennsylvania government said, it's not our tax, we're not going to go collect on this. So that really enraged uh, Hamilton. He was urging Washington to send the army in, go after these people. Well, eventually, time wore on, they still weren't paying it. When tax collectors were sent out there, they would get tarred and feathered. And eventually... Um, Hamilton just kept prodding Washington and Washington said, no, I want to be a moderate on this. Uh, but eventually Washington gave him the green light. Hamilton rides out there with militiamen to show off how powerful the new federal government is and eventually, uh, puts the rebellion down. This is known as the whiskey rebellion. Jefferson became president in 1802. He ended all direct taxes because he said that direct taxes are the enemy of a free society. And also, thank Hamilton for getting his other big government nationalist buddy, John Marshall who became Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, and John Marshall is another one of the worst villains in American history who really just completely expanded the federal government. If you like cases like Roe v. Wade and NFIB v. Sebelius, uh, that's the Obamacare case, then you can thank John Marshall for putting Hamilton's huge nationalist vision uh, with unchecked federal government into effect. Maybe at some point we'll get a video about John Marshall, some of the other awful justices. Another fun fact about Hamilton is he's the first politician uh, in American history to be involved in a sex scandal. I know nowadays we don't think much of it, but he actually was having an affair with a married woman and oddly enough her husband finds out and ends up blackmailing Hamilton and he ends up actually collecting over $2,000 from Hamilton and The word is that at some point the woman actually uh, got in on it and uh, together they kind of colluded to extort this money from Hamilton. After uh, serving as Secretary of the Treasury under the Washington administration, Hamilton ends up leaving uh, political office, but he does not retire from political life. The 1800 election, you had uh, Thomas Jefferson versus Aaron Burr, And while Hamilton had disagreements with Jefferson on pretty much every issue, he hated Aaron Burr just a little bit more. Thomas Jefferson and Aaron Burr actually tied in the election, so the vote went to the House of Representatives, and Hamilton used his influence to get Jefferson to win the election. Well, Aaron Burr is the vice president, and after Jefferson's first term, he says, you know, I really don't want you coming back here. Aaron Burr steps down, and now he wants to run for governor of New York, which, as I said, is also Hamilton's home state. And Hamilton just really hates Aaron Burr because now he's using his political weight in his home state to make sure Aaron Burr doesn't become governor of New York. Aaron Burr's opponent does win the uh, governor election, New York. Uh, Largely in part because Hamilton backed him. It comes out in this Albany Register that Hamilton had written all these letters uh, defaming Aaron Burr to make sure he wouldn't win this election. And Aaron Burr is just really mad when he finds this out. He demands an apology from Alexander Hamilton. Uh, Hamilton refuses because uh, he believes apologizing would make him look like a coward. It would hurt his honor. So they settle it in a duel and as... You probably all know, in 1804, they duel, and uh, that's it for Alexander Hamilton. So, Hamilton is a liar, he's duplicitous, but the reason he's hurt the United States so much is because his framework has prevailed, it's won the day, and a lot of his ideas have carried on, and they're what we're still dealing with today, 250 years later. For instance, in the general welfare clause, it's basically, well, as long as it permits the general welfare, you can do it. And how many politicians have you heard say it? Heck, I've even heard it in a city council meeting, councilman saying, well, we can shut everything down from the COVID pandemic because we're promoting the general welfare. Really, that's your understanding of the constitution? That this vague clause gives you power to do whatever you want? It's so sad. Joseph Story who's another one of the worst Supreme Court justices, wrote about this in 1833, and the government has just ran away with it ever since. Basically become a uh, Blake check since the 1930s for the government to tax and spend on anything it wants. And the Necessary and Proper Clause, very similar. Hamilton, as I said, did the old bait and switch. He used it to get the National Bank, which was not constitutionally authorized, none of the founders wanted, and the Federal Reserve, has done nothing but make our society poorer after the civil war which will have to be another video topic this clause has been used to give the government complete control over currency and it's been paired with the commerce clause another one of these sweeping clauses where the government uses to do whatever they want this was used to justify things like the new deal legislation cases like wickard v filburn in 1947 Uh, which was the case about regulating wheat that someone's growing. The government says they can basically regulate anything you do. So, hey, thanks for watching this episode. I was really excited to do it. I hope you enjoyed it. Hamilton's legacy lives on, unfortunately, but really the only answer for us to combat this federal government that can do whatever it wants is to learn the real history. When someone says, oh, the general welfare, correct them. Tell them, no, no, no. This is a myth. This is tyranny. The courts and people like Hamilton have totally flipped the script. And people have ran away with it. And idiots will believe it. Arm yourself with the truth. That's how you combat this stuff. That's what we're here doing on the show. As I said, we're taking an axe to myths and propaganda. And they use this propaganda against us to say, Well, the founding fathers like Hamilton. Yeah, that's one person. And when he sold the constitution, he sold it on totally different grounds. So listen to what people said before the constitution was ratified, not after they were in office to use for their own political gain. Hey, if you like this episode, you wanna help us keep the lights on, like, subscribe, share with your friends. Really appreciate it. Uh, you can check out the Facebook page, Twitter, uh, the YouTube page, go to choosewisely.org, and you'll have a hub of everything we're doing. Hey, have a great weekend, and we'll talk to you soon.